I feel so excited for next Sunday, and I wish I could say I was going to be here with you, but I was invited to go to Jerusalem and be a part of that prayer meeting. So I'm going to do my best to be there with my Gate City shirt on, and just give, I'll give a shout out to Gate City, and uh, we will actually go. What's pretty cool is we'll go from, I believe, our 9 to 10 a.m. slot here to the prayer meeting that I'll be a part of there on the Southern Steps in Jerusalem. And Billy mentioned this, but I want to emphasize it again. What a better time to finish 21 days of fasting and prayer than the day of Pentecost. And we are actually going to be praying for the fullness of God's purpose for Israel. And that's what the message is on this morning. I did have a little bit of a stirring of a word of encouragement this morning, though I want to share this briefly. Uh, And we've heard a lot this morning already. I mean, we've already done church quite a bit. Like, I feel like we could have done the altar call after the Morocco testimony and, uh, and just ended service right there. I do feel like I have a word of encouragement for us. And so I'm going to bring that. But I did want to just say something to our worship team which I was sitting on the front row there watching our worship team. And something I want to let you guys in on in this room is that you look up here and see a lot of young people, right? Leading in worship. Uh, But Rachel and Luke have both been, Rachel's been a part of this ministry almost since the womb, I think, probably 20 plus years. Is that right? That's not an exaggeration about her father's an elder, part of our board. How many years, Rachel, have you been a a part of, uh, let's just say leading worship in the house of prayer? 19 years she's been leading. So she spent more years leading than she has not in her, I don't know, I won't say exactly how old you are. You're about 30 years old, is that right? And so, and so Rachel, Luke, uh, Harrison, this group, just wave your hand as I'm shouting you out, Luke and Harrison and Danielle and Melissa. Uh, Melissa, 20, what did we determine? 17, 18 years you've been apart. Harrison, since you were 15 years old, Luke, since you were 16 years old, these young people, that makes me an elder and Billy an elder of elders. He's the ancient of days up front, he and Dustin. But, but these ones who have been leading our spiritual family, those that are, that are uh, in positions of worship, we see them and I go, man, this, we can see the members that are down front. Last Sunday was so encouraging, 15 plus people joining our church's membership, 11 plus baptisms today. And you can go, you know, a lot of times you can interpret numbers as good fruit while we're growing, we're healthy. But the thing that speaks to my heart that says, man, there's something special going on here is the, the longevity of these young people who are giving their hearts to the Lord in worship and prayer. And I just feel like if I don't share that with you, I'm, I'm missing the opportunity to tell you, tell you something that's really precious that God is doing among us. And as we're praying for our young people that are graduating today, I'm going, those are the leaders of tomorrow. And I just want to thank you guys. Rachel, this is the first time you've led worship on a Sunday in Gate City and in the past 10 years. You did an amazing job. Thank you to you guys for leading us this morning. And thank you for being faithful over decades. We are really, really grateful for you guys. So I just wanted to say that I couldn't help it this morning. Okay, you guys can go back now. I told them they all had to come out because I wanted to say something. So, amen. All right, so I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray that Jesus would help us to get through this message in about 35 minutes. Miracles can happen. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for who we are as a spiritual family, just taking the gospel from our neighborhoods to the nations. I thank you, Lord, for the things that are happening in our community to disciple people. They go deep in the knowledge of God. I thank you for the testimonies of the baptisms this morning and just the glory that came through the lives that are determining to live uh, transformed and are changing right before our eyes, Lord. I thank you for the uh, Moroccan believers, Lord, whose lives have been transformed through the faithfulness of people being sent from this house. I thank you, God, this morning for every dollar sown. I thank you for every song sung in worship and prayer. Thank you for every day of fasting that's been sown into this season of 21 days. And I thank you for this moment, Lord, where we get to, to hear from you by the grace of God. And I just ask that you would hold my hand and that you'd let me speak as an oracle, Lord. And we choose to open our hearts to hear what you would say to us today about the apple of your eye, about Israel. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. Well, I have the distinguished difficulty of having to preach after you guys heard my wife the last two weeks. And, uh, and uh, you know, the pressure was mounting on me all week as I heard how what your wife did such an amazing job and she did so good. And wow, that was incredible the last two weeks. And I was like, dang, I got to preach this coming Sunday. So she's listening right now. She's not with me because she's with our family on the way out of town. But, uh, but honey, I love you. And you made it real hard for me this morning because she did such an incredible job last week. But I do want to bring us an encouraging word today on how we stand with Israel specifically in the last days. And I want to treat this message a little bit like a funnel, okay? And I want to look at something called biblical theology, and I'll explain what that is in a moment. But what biblical theology is, is a way of approaching the Bible. And I want to use the topic of Israel to highlight something that I think is really important for the discipleship of our whole spiritual family. This is a little bit more of a teaching than a preaching. I'm sure I'll get my preach on at some moments because it's in there. But this is a little more of a teaching. And I would encourage you to actually follow along with the notes. I did a little more detailed notes than I usually do. Uh, It must have been my wife's influence rubbing off on me. But I did a little more detailed notes than I usually do. And I would encourage you to follow along. I think you can scan the QR code on the back of the seats. I think we could put that slide up even if it's readily available. Just click that and follow along on your phone, your iPad, your, uh, your laptop. And if you're following, if you're virtual and at home, you can, I believe, pull those up right on the, on the homepage. And so pull up these notes and why an approach to the Bible and the kind of, like I said, the top of the funnel, we're going to talk about how we approach the Bible generally, how it emphasizes the point of Israel, and then how specifically we need to consider the role of Israel in the end times, because I believe those are the times Unquestionably, those are the times we're closest to in human history, and we may perhaps even be in the most important generation that gets to be a part of writing the final chapter of human history. And we get to play a significant part, but we can't understand the part that God has called us to play if we don't understand the story. And uh, Wesley shared a powerful testimony about that. I I may bring you up, Wesley, right at the end. We're going to see. But... He shared with me this week how knowing the story has transformed his view of prayer. And what he shared was so compelling that I just felt like what God did in you is what I want God to do in all of us. And I hope this message is helpful to that. So that's what we're going to do today. I also felt like I was originally going to do this as a one-part message. We were going to wrap up with the prayer meeting next week. But I felt like what I had to say was... Uh, more substantial than I could fit into one message. So I graciously appealed to Billy and said, there's no hope for me getting this in in one message. Can can I have a second Sunday? And so I think it's appropriate. I'll go to Israel. We'll do that prayer meeting, and then I'm going to come back and and do the conclusion of this message that we're going to start today. And I hope it gives you an opportunity to even perhaps study a little bit in the next two weeks. If you're just hearing about this fast for Israel, if you're just jumping into this series midstream, it's not too late to fully engage with your heart. Sometimes it feels like the train is pulled off from the station and you can jump on the caboose, okay? You can, you can jump on, in on this thing with, with your whole heart if you haven't heard about it previously. I still think get a lot out of it. So I would encourage you to do that. It's going to be a powerful week this week leading up to that prayer meeting. And also, it is going to be, uh, I think, the conclusion of this uh, message in a few weeks. It, I believe God really wants to speak to us. So, so that's what we're going to do today and in the coming weeks. So what is biblical theology? It's a little bit of a misnomer because, of course, all theology should be biblical theology, right? And I think whoever came up with that term was like, I'm going to make it sound as official as possible. Biblical theology. But really what biblical theology is, is a narrative approach to understanding the Bible. And I explain it in great detail in the notes, and you can certainly read that. I'm just going to hit some of the highlights of the explanation of biblical theology. And like I said, why this is really important, I'll break that down to you personally. But I I think for the discipleship of our spiritual family, understanding how to read the Bible, there's almost nothing more important understanding how to study the Bible. There's almost nothing that's more important. I would say our intimacy with God and prayer and then how that informs our interaction with the word. Those are central to who we should be as Christians. But the problem is we haven't always been taught how to read the Bible. I, as a young Christian, I I think I was taught to read the Bible 
without being taught how to encounter God. And what that produced in me was religion rather than a reading of the Bible that taught me that my reading of the Bible is all about encountering him. It actually, what religion does is it puts me at the center of the story, unfortunately. And what I've learned through a right view of reading the Bible, which is what I'm going to share with you a little bit today, is that the purpose of of reading and studying the Bible is encountering him and his story. So biblical theology, this approach looks at the story of scripture as a whole, as a means by which we interpret and derive meaning from its various parts. We'll see that when we take a biblical theology approach towards scripture, the subject of Israel becomes of paramount importance. So if you're following along in the notes, there's a quote from a renowned theologian, D.A. Carson, and he says, biblical theology seeks to uncover and articulate the unity of all biblical, you got to read quotes like this in a voice like that, (laughs) uncover and articulate the unity of all the biblical texts taken together, resorting primarily to the categories of those texts themselves. So what does that mean? (laughs) It means biblical theology is concerned with the literary and historical context of the story, and it derives the meaning of the story from the story itself. I'll say that again. There's an arc of the story from Genesis to Revelation, and what biblical theology teaches us is the most important thing about any one section of the story is what the whole of the story tells us about that section. To do biblical theology is to think about the whole story of the Bible. If you're doing systematic theology, by contrast, you're taking a particular, it's not bad to have multiple ways of approaching the Bible, but systematic theology is probably one of the most predominant ways that the Bible is taught. And what happens when you teach systematically is you go through the entirety of the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about one particular category of thought, but not what the story says holistically. And so... We want to understand the development of the Bible's teaching so we're interpreting the stories in light of the whole. Uh, As an acorn grows into an oak tree, Genesis 3.15 grows into the good news of Jesus Christ when we look at the whole of the story. Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, the offspring, and you will strike his heel, Satan striking the heel of future Messiah. And I put in the appendix the narrative thread from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 19, just several verses that tell us the story of Messiah through Old Testament, New Testament, epistles, gospels, book of Revelation. And it's a fascinating way to look at the story of one particular portion of scripture. But we see what happens in Genesis 3.15, the the story and the conversation that begins there, you can trace the thread all the way through the Bible. It culminates in Revelation 19, where this one who we hear about for the first time in Genesis 3 as a seed, now he is the one who comes in righteousness and justice to judge and make war against the disobedient nations, to judge the ungodly and to reward the righteous with many crowns upon his brow. And this one who was only known as the seed in Genesis 3 is now known as Jesus Messiah in Revelation 19. And we know who the rider is upon the white horse because we've seen the maturation of the story throughout the entirety of the Bible. And one of the best examples of this, I'll just kind of talk you through it, is if you look in Luke 24, we can see that Jesus was an adherent to biblical theology. And what I mean by that is he encounters his disciples in disguise on the road to Emmaus. It's post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, and the disciples are there, and it says their expression on their face is very sad. And Jesus approaches them on the road as they're having a conversation about these events. And the fact that their expression is sad and they're downcast in talking about what's just happened shows us that they had almost no understanding of the events that had just occurred. Though they knew the current event, they knew what was being said in the streets, they knew even what was being said among the community of disciples, they lost track of the larger story. Let's read it together in Luke 24. Jesus comes up to them in disguise. How he didn't bust out laughing, I don't know. He says, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas said, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He goes, everybody knows about this. How do you not know? 
And Jesus plays dumb and he says, what things? And they say, about Jesus of Nazareth. And they tell the whole current events of the story. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced into death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early that morning and didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Get this. They understood a section of the story. Can we see that they had all the facts of that section of the story accurate? They knew who Jesus was. They knew that he'd been crucified. They knew that he'd been risen from the dead. They knew what the women had told them when they came, but yet they had lost sight of what that story was meant to tell them about themselves and the bigger picture of what God was doing. And this is what Jesus says to them, how foolish you are. How foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. See, he took a portion of the story that they knew and he contextualized it in the larger narrative. And when I tell you, we as Christians are oftentimes lost in the moment of what God is doing in our lives, in our church, in our city, and perhaps even in the nations, when we take the activity of God and we lose sight of the larger story. And it says that in just a few more verses, their commentary on this experience of Jesus explaining the larger story to them is, did our hearts not burn within us? And that was my prayer for us this morning, Gate City, that we as disciples who are walking with Jesus, hearing the story, that we wouldn't just have insight into the present moment, but we would know the whole of the story. And as we know the whole of the story, we would be filled with wisdom, but not an intellectual wisdom, but the wisdom that comes from having a burning heart, a wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit prophetically interpreting not just our season and our moment, but the entirety of the story, that we would find our place in it, that we would fulfill our place in it. Because as Wesley said earlier this week, we cannot be the forerunners who prepare the way for the king if we don't know the story. If we don't understand Genesis 3 to Revelation 19, we can get lost in the moment that we're in and the confusion. Because how many of you know there are confusing moments in the days ahead? I believe that. There are moments of suffering, difficulty, and adversity. But if we don't understand that famines and pestilences, hardship, wars, rumors of wars, all the features of Matthew 24, that those things are going to come and then the end. If we don't understand that gospel to the nations, every tribe, nation will hear the gospel of the kingdom. And then the end, we won't understand how to play our part in the story. And we'll be confused when a COVID-19 happens. And we'll have a hard time understanding, is this God, is this the devil, when he's made it plain in the entirety of the story arc. And what we can even become is downcast at the news of what God is doing because we don't understand the redemption that's at hand. And so when we know the story, it allows us to be filled with hope in every season. If these guys had just known the story, they'd know it's the tomb is not the end of the story. And can I tell you, the resurrection of Christ is not the end of the story. Though it's, the, it's everything, it's not the end of the story. There's a moment when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And upon his return, he gathers the fullness of the Gentile nations and the fullness of the nation of Israel. And at that moment, it will be life from the dead for every believer throughout human history. Do you know that there are those who are waiting in heaven for the fullness of the day of resurrection, and they have not yet received the fullness of their salvation. Even for those who have departed us and gone to heaven and are part of the great cloud of witnesses, the story isn't over. And what Hebrews tells us is that God has seen in his infinite wisdom that the fullness of Paul's reward is not going to precede the fullness of your reward. Do you know that 
Paul is still accumulating heavenly riches for his faithfulness in his life. His faithfulness is still bearing fruit, and there's still a future day of rewarding for Paul, and you're going to get to see it. We are going to get to stand together at the end of the story and experience it one another. When we get that, man, our, our hearts will burn within us. We can understand the story in a, in a small narrative, but when we get the big picture, oh, it's inspiring, it's powerful, it's transformational. So we should study the Bible in this way. What are the things that we avoid when we study the Bible in this way? Where the church is emphasizing, I said this in point G on page four, where the church is emphasizing cultural battles, personal blessings and benefits, and not emphasizing God's unfolding narrative. We become set up for deception in that we are only building on partial truth and an incomplete unfolding of God's story. Like the disciples on the Emmaus Road, we discern God's activity. What were the things they discerned to be true? A prophet, powerful in word and deed. We hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. We have seen visions of angels. But they're left in confusion because they lack the clarity that comes with only knowing the larger story. In essence, when we approach scripture with this idea of biblical theology, we let God's larger story reveal to us the places of significance and importance, rather than us reading into parts of the story the things that we see as important and meaningful. I'll say it again in a different way. When you read the Bible, and this is what I did in my immaturity, I would play Bible roulette, I'd flip the Bible open and say, what is God saying? What is God saying to me today? You know, like a magic eight ball. Do we read the Bible only to tell us, and uh, you know, sometimes God speaks through that. I mean, God will speak through a donkey he did in the Bible. But do we read the Bible only to tell us about the things that are important to us? Or do we read and study the Bible to discover and learn the things that are important to God? And a lot of people go, well, I don't understand why we're studying Israel because it's not. And what they mean is it's not really important to me. And I go, well, the reason we're studying and trying to understand Israel is because if you look at the entire arc of the story, Israel is very important to God. (laughs) And the reason we don't understand that Israel is important to God is because we've had a misinformed way of reading the Bible that is mostly me-centric as opposed to God-centric, that is mostly isolated and cherry-picked parts of the story as opposed to knowing the entire arc of the story. Certain subjects like Israel can seem entirely relevant in our day-to-day lives until we discover the hand of the master story weaver. He's actually bending the arc of history according to his sovereign purpose. Hear me in this. I believe this is a word for us to understand. What suddenly seemed irrelevant yesterday to our day-to-day lives will soon become of utmost importance today. If we really believe the events of 1948, where the nation of Israel reemerges on the scene after thousands of years of the Jewish people not being in the land, that that was part of God's sovereign purpose in World War II, a war that both my grandparents fought in, then what we're saying is that the nation of Israel, which no one even thought was going to exist as a nation in any time in the near future and hadn't for thousands of years. Suddenly God in his sovereign purpose sent hundreds of thousands of Americans across the ocean to fight in a war that its ultimate sovereign purpose was in part the destiny of that nation being fulfilled so that the fullness of his plan can come to pass in the days ahead. If we really believe that, how suddenly can the events of our nation's history shift again and the nations of the earth, which he says he sets the boundary lines so that men and women might grope for him in Acts 17, the sovereign God of the universe who has told us the end of the story in advance can suddenly what makes seem, what seemingly is irrelevant to our day-to-day lives, we're sending people across the earth in order to, to fulfill some God-ordained purpose. We should accept that God is the one who, yes, he knows the numbers of hairs upon our head. And I just taught a whole lesson on this earlier this week, Psalm 139. 
So important to know that, that God is the one that though we are but vapor, he knows us, Isaiah 40 says. Like, we're but grass, but all flesh is but grass. But the God who calls out the stars by name, he, he's concerned with us. He cares about us, right? That's an amazing truth. It's also an amazing truth that this one who knows the numbers of hairs upon your head, he also is orchestrating in his sovereignty the leadership of the nations of the earth to accomplish his purpose. And you get to be in on that story. You don't have to be ignorant of it. It's right there in the word of God to be discovered. So I want to take two prophetic vignettes because I'm thinking about this God of geopolitics, the God who moves the boundary lines of nations, the God who tells the entirety of the story. And there's two pictures where he speaks to prophets, Daniel and John, one in the book of Daniel and one in the book of Revelation. And he uses these pictures to tell us his view of the rise and fall of nations. He uses these pictures even to tell us about the final chapter of human history and what that's going to be like. And in these prophetic vignettes, they're confusing, but they're confusing with purpose. Can I say that? If you look, I'm about to put some weird pictures up. I'm going to put a picture up of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and John's vision, and they're peculiar pictures. But John's vision in particular in Revelation 17, it's it, t- it takes a mind of wisdom to understand these things. It says in Daniel chapter 2 that none of the wise men of that day had the ability to understand or interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but the God who reveals mysteries was making it known to his servants. And so even though this isn't normally Sunday morning fair, I want to take a moment to just talk about these two pictures and something they tell us about God's view of history, God's view of the nations, and his purpose for Israel. So you guys ready to look at some weird prophecies with me this morning? May our hearts burn within us, God, in Jesus' name, amen. God will often use prophetic encounters and words in the Bible to allude to bigger themes in history. And there are two places I've just mentioned, Daniel Daniel 2 and Revelation 13. We're going to read the Daniel 2 encounter. Uh, For those that are unfamiliar with the story, okay, I know that there's always a handful of people that this may be the first time you've come to church in a long time. I'm glad we're here talking about Israel and beasts and end times and statues and all kinds of stuff. We'd love to see you in the next room if you have any questions following the service. For those unfamiliar with the story, okay, in Daniel chapter 2, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar... He had taken Daniel and his companions in captivity from Israel. He'd taken the elite of Jerusalem and brought them and made them uh, wise men in his courts. But these are young men uh, who had gone together into captivity, probably in their teens. So Nebuchadnezzar has a troubling dream, and he wants to be sure the interpretation is really of divine origin. And he's obviously skeptical of his wise men and, and uh, sorcerers and diviners of that day. And he really didn't believe that they could give him a, 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 an accurate answer. And so because of his skepticism, he gives them a challenge and says, you not only have to give me the interpretation, you have to tell me the dream that's known only to me. And in order to raise the stakes a little bit, he said, if you aren't able to do that, I'm going to kill you all. Nebuchadnezzar was a very demanding boss. So this is high stakes. And what's remarkable is young Daniel goes before this uh, bloodthirsty ruler who has destroyed his nation, taken him into captivity. But because he's confident in God, he's courageous and he goes before Nebuchadnezzar and he entreats him for time. And he says, give me time. I'm going to seek the Lord with prayer and fasting and ask. And, and God answers Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he answers them and actually gives Daniel the dream and its interpretation. So we pick up the story when Daniel is about to give the most terrifying PowerPoint presentation of his life to his boss. He goes, I had the dream. I, I have the interpretation. But he he doesn't know for sure. It hasn't been verified yet that it's accurate, though he's had this supernatural experience with God. And and so he comes before Daniel, and Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, he's about to tell him the dream for the first time in its interpretation. He says, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain the king the mysteries he has asked about. I love the humility of Daniel. It tells us something about his character. 
He doesn't say at the conclusion of that, but I have the answer, which is probably what I would have said. He says, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. There's a God in heaven who can cause our hearts to burn within us as we learn the story. And he's shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in your bed are these. And then he begins to break down in a very short amount of time the arc, the future arc of thousands of years of geopolitical history. Daniel 2.31, he says, Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, enormous and dazzling, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold, its chest and its arms of silver, its belly and thighs are of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a a threshing floor in the summer. And the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Amen. So let's hear Daniel's interpretation. He explains to Nebuchadnezzar, after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom of bronze will rule the whole earth. Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom strong as iron for iron breaks and smashes everything and as iron breaks and smashes things to pieces. So it will crush and break all others. And just as you saw the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron. So this will be a divided kingdom. Yet we'll have some strength of iron in it. And you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly of iron, partly of clay, so the kingdom will partly be strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. And in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. All right, so I want to take a moment, and without diving into the, uh, all the details of this prophecy, I just want to explain to us the overall arc of it, okay? So in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there are successive world empires that rule over Israel until the time of Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD. These kingdoms, starting with Nebuchadnezzar's, were the Babylonians that were then taken over by the Medo-Persians. Those were the guys that threw Daniel into the lion's den. Then Greece with uh, Alexander the Great, and then the division of those kingdoms, and the book of Daniel prophesies even those things in greater detail. And then eventually Rome, the kingdom that's represented by iron, comes on the scene, But then we see that there's a final kingdom that we believe is the Antichrist Empire, and it's represented by the clay and iron mixture that is the feet. And in fact, the entirety of the picture of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of these successive world empires, it actually represents all the Gentile nations that will eventually be shattered by the coming of Messiah and his ever-increasing kingdom. So it's a prophecy that's both near and far. It actually says in the time of the the iron kingdom that this rock that's not cut by human hands, that's the the God who says in Isaiah, uh, I've found no intercessor, so I reached forth my own mighty right hand and brought forth salvation. That is Messiah Jesus. That is the rock that is not cut by human hands. He is the word made flesh. He is the one who came into the earth and defeated all principality and power upon the cross. And through his resurrection, and we see that that rock that was not cut by human hands, it comes forth in the time of, uh, in the time of the Roman Empire. But we also see that the fullness of what Messiah's kingdom will do is not yet. It's so interesting. He says to Pontius Pilate, who is representative of the Roman government in his day, he says that if my kingdom were of this world, my, my servants would fight which tells me the time of the fullness of his kingdom was not yet at that time. He had to suffer and die and be rose again, as he explained to his disciples in Luke 24. He ascended into heaven, but there's a time when Christ will come again. And that is when the time when that rock that is not cut with human hands actually comes to shatter all the nations that stand in opposition to him. And the picture of those nations 
is the vision that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And so this finally shattering of those nations, it's reserved for the final generation of the Lord's return when a composite nation will arise that represents those nations that have persecuted the Jewish people. And here's the point I want to drive at. There's a lot of end times things that we could understand from this passage, but let's throw the picture up real quick. There he is. Nebuchadnezzar's vision, I'm sure is far more terrifying than that. But you see the successive nations and then the composite of the nations is the one that will be judged. All the nations of the earth, they worship idols for the most part, but there is a one true and living God. This stone will actually grow to fill the whole earth. That's the predominant message, right? And why it was troubling to Nebuchadnezzar is he goes, if I'm representative of the statue, he goes, my kingdom's going to come to an end. And he'll actually get a taste of that later when he loses his mind for a little bit until he testifies the kingdom of heaven rules over all. But here's what I want us to understand that when God tells the story of human history that culminates in the return of his son and the kingdom of God being set up on the earth, that he's not primarily talking about the United States of America. He's not primarily talking about the economic rise of China. He's not predominantly talking about the conflict between Russia and, uh, and Ukraine. The main thing that God focuses on in his telling of history is the nations that have persecuted Israel. God has an Israel-centric view of history. And in the same way, he has an Israel-centric view of the last days. And it's not that in salvation, Israel is joining us. It's that we who have been born again are grafted into the promises of the patriarchs as Hannah articulated so well in teaching the covenants. We've joined a covenant that was given first to Israel, to the Jews first, right? And then a portion of them received it and a portion of them rejected it. But we are joining in with God's promises to Israel. It's not the other way around. And this is, can at times be offensive. Like America is not as important sometimes as we think it is. We may actually only be as important as we are pertaining to the nation of Israel (laughs) in God's view of things. All right, you ready for the second vision? Are you guys still with me? Your eyes didn't gloss over on that one. It's, I spent a lot of time in that moment talking about something a little complex to make that one point though, that when God talks to Nebuchadnezzar, which there's only one other person that is known as the king of kings in scripture. And it's actually Nebuchadnezzar. It's Nebuchadnezzar and Jesus. So the one who under Babylon was known as king of kings, right? Jesus is making a point through this vision to Daniel that the one who in human terms is known as king of kings, he's going to be replaced by the stone not cut with human hands that grows and fills the whole earth. And those kingdoms, they're going to be like chaff to the wind, the most glorious, powerful human kingdoms ever. And the most powerful one is still yet to come. It's the Antichrist, and don't be thrown off by that term. But there will be a wicked ruler who rules a global empire that will be one of the strongest empires ever in human history. It will be a composite of all the great ones that have come before. But the key feature that unites them is that all of them are anti-Semitic. That all of them have a degree of control and abuse of the Jewish people. And that is the kingdom that is going to be supplanted and destroyed by our Jewish Messiah. All right, let's look at another kind of crazy vision. So if you look with me, Revelation 13.1, there's a beast that comes up out of the sea. It has 10 horns and seven heads, 10 crowns on its horns. Each had a blasphemous name. There's a lot of features to this beast that we could interpret and learn from but I just want to focus on one aspect of it. And he says, the beast I saw resembled a leopard. Then it had the feet of a bear, then a mouth like a lion. So it has those same kingdoms that are mentioned in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It has four of them represented by those features, okay? And I don't have all the time to demonstrate it to you, but if you look at what commentators say and what the story actually tells us about itself, biblical theology, we find that these are most likely the kingdom's Uh, some of the kingdoms that are mentioned. And so we see this beast coming upon the scene and it's a a terrifying sight. And then in Revelation 17, we see John returning to this beast and giving us some descriptions. Remember it had seven heads, okay? That's the main feature we're gonna focus on for a moment to make the same point as Daniel's vision. 
Uh, let's go ahead and throw the picture up. This was the most realistic rendering that I could find on the internet. Let's, let's put it, okay. That was the best I could do. Imagine, you know, I've gone on safari in Africa. Imagine encountering that guy in the jungle. You've got the seven heads, you've got the horns, feet like a bear, body like a leopard. And this is giving us potentially key insights into how terrifying this final kingdom is going to be. Now, here's what I want us to understand. Revelation 17, 9, John says about the vision he's about to describe to you, this calls for a mind of wisdom. This calls for a mind of wisdom. That doesn't mean human intelligence can figure this out. That means there's actually something that we need to ask God for in order to accurately understand what he's telling us. That is going to be very, very important in the days ahead. And though the artist's renderings might seem a little silly, it was not silly when John encountered this vision. It was intense. It was significant. It was important. It was so important that John puts a curse on anybody that alters the word of the book of Revelation. He goes, at the end of the book, he goes, you know, cursed is basically anybody who changes the words of this book because the things that he got shown were so important, especially for that final generation. So the seven heads of this beast are most commonly understood to represent seven, well, six anti-Semitic nations that have oppressed Israel throughout their history. And if you look at the history of the Jewish people, you have Egypt, which enslaved them for 400 years. You have Assyria, which took the northern tribes into captivity and they never returned again. You have Babylon, which is where Daniel 2 picks up the story. Then you have Medo-Persia, Greece, which is the nation that did the abomination of desolation the first time through Antiochus Epiphanes. That's the story of Hanukkah, eight crazy nights after, <laughs> after he sacrificed a pig, defiling the altar to Zeus, and they overthrew the Greeks, and so they had this conflict, but Greece defiled the temple, and then you have Rome, which actually sent the Jewish people into their last exile in 70 AD. Okay, so let's read it. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has yet to come. So at the time of John, we would have understood the five that have fallen to be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. Everybody following me? Okay. And then Rome, the one that is, and then a seventh mystery kingdom that has not yet come and remains for a short time. And then there's an eighth kingdom, it says, that belonged to the seven. Now we need a mind of wisdom to understand this. But this is the kingdom that it says is of the Antichrist that goes to destruction. So this can be understood to mean the final Antichrist will be both a culmination of the preceding powers and draw upon their historical legacy to establish its global power. We see an example of this in how Hitler appropriated previous historical legacies to create credibility and a seeming divine destiny for the Nazi regime. It has been even conjectured by some that Nazi Germany may be the seventh anti-Semitic kingdom that is not yet. There's certainly no other kingdom that actively killed as many Jewish people as the Nazi regime. And if you compare the decades of their rule to the hundreds of years of the other nation's rule, it would be accurate to say that they remained a short time. So I say all that to say, okay, follow me. This is the main point. If there is really a kingdom coming that is composed of seven preceding anti-Semitic kingdoms, and that is the eighth kingdom. If Nazi Germany is the seventh kingdom, we have gone through seven of history's anti-Semitic nations, and the next one to come on the scene may be the eighth. We don't need to be fearful because these kingdoms and confederations are going to be shattered by the rock that is not hewn by human hands. Yet, Matthew 24, 41 tells us there's going to be a time of great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. I just want to read that again. Matthew 24, Jesus talking about the end times. We know that if, if what Jesus is saying is true, that means that this time will be a greater time of distress than World War I. 
a greater time of distress than World War II. It says that there's a time coming that will be unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and will never be equaled again. And if those days had not been cut short by the coming of Christ, no one will have survived. And here's what I want to tell you about what the government of the nations, what is the unifying feature of the government of the nations that is bringing that oppression on the earth is that they are composed of the anti-Semitic nations throughout human history. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, perhaps Nazi Germany, and then the eighth, which combines the strength and the horrifying features of the preceding ones. And if the eighth is truly the next to come upon the scene, how important is us for us to understand the story, where we are in the story, and what the features are of the things that we are going to have to stand against in the last days. Many of the believers in the time of Nazi Germany were unprepared, were caught unaware, and they were unable to stand. And much of the church capitulated to the pressure of that day and turned a blind eye to the persecution of the Jews in that hour. I remember touring the Holocaust Museum, and this really came home to me in a personal way because as my wife shared, she's part Jewish. And I've always thought about her as Jewish. And I have a little like quarter Jew babies. That's the way I think about them. (laughs) And I remember reading a placard on how they defined who went to the concentration camps. And if you had one eighth Jewish blood, you and your spouse would go to the concentration camp. And it hit me in that moment. Okay. This wasn't something that that they would have experienced, it's something I would have experienced. I thought a lot about how to stand with, how would I have responded if a Jew had knocked, if a Nazi had knocked on my door and I was hiding Jews? Like, would I lie? Would I tell the, you know, you have these kind of moral hypotheticals that you'll go through sometimes as a Christian. Like, how do you respond in that moment? But in that moment, I went from being the Christian who had to stand with Israel had to stand with Jewish brethren in the moment of persecution to myself being one who would have been persecuted because of my relationship to my wife. I can't describe to you how that shifted my viewpoint on what it means to stand with Israel. We have to understand, and here's where we're going to end, and we're going to ask God to give us wisdom to understand the story to understand our part in it, to understand what's coming upon the earth. But here's what I want you to understand today, church, okay, as we conclude. There's a bigger story. If you understand and interpret that story correctly, you see that Israel is pivotal to it from beginning, middle, to the end. We as the church have entered into and found a place in that story. God has given us insight through these scriptures, and many of them are ones that no one will touch with a 10-foot pole on a Sunday morning. Because they are very, except for me, praise God, because they are very confusing. But why are they confusing? It's so that we will actually cry out for wisdom in order to understand them. And if you want to be a forerunner that is preparing the way for Jesus' kingdom, the mountain that will fill the whole earth, you also have to understand the one who is going to be putting absolute as much pressure upon the church in that moment as possible. And God has given us these prophecies to give us understanding. So that we'll actually cry out like Daniel did, give us the dream, give us the interpretation. So that we'll actually recognize it takes a mind of understanding and not just look at it and go, well, I hope somebody else figures it out. Like we actually look at it and we go, I want to be one who has a mind of understanding and wisdom so that I can lead people with righteousness in the last days. Because there is a time that is coming with great distress upon the whole earth. And it's not just going to be the oppression of the nations. It's going to be specifically the oppression of the Jewish people that is going to unfold in those last days, a time frame that is identified in Scripture as Jacob's trouble. So we will pause there, and we will begin this conversation in our next teaching time in a couple weeks with a conversation on what is Jacob's trouble and that time of difficulty that is going to come upon the earth. Let's stand together. Billy likes it. All right. Everybody likes it. Good. Amen. Thank you. Just put your hand on your heart.
Lord, we cry out to you this morning for wisdom. We need to understand these things. We need to understand these things, Lord. And we trust, God, that with your help, they are not beyond us. I ask, Lord, that you would impart to us as a spiritual family the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That we would have insight, that we would be fascinated with the word of God and not just the parts that are easy to understand. That we would be fascinated with your story from beginning to end. And that we would constantly in every season reorient to that story in a way that brings us hope and clarity from the word of God. We're asking, Lord, to make us a forerunner company that is able to partner with your purposes at the end of the age. And we're seeking it, Lord, with fasting and with prayer. Because we know that this thing that is coming upon the earth is going to touch the lives of all people. It's going to touch our lives, the lives of our children. And so we stand in those days looking to what is coming without fear. We stand in these days looking to what is coming with confidence, believing that you will do everything that you've said you will do. That your kingdom will be, though it was a stone in the days of Jesus, it will become a glorious mountain that fills the whole earth in the days ahead. So we desire, Lord, to hasten the days of your coming, to partner with the days of your coming, to know what it means that all the gods of the nations are but idols, but you are the one true and living God. So even right now, Lord, Release wisdom in this room. Give us understanding, God. Give us understanding, God. We call upon you, Lord. Strengthen us that we would not be confused or deceived in the days ahead, but that we would partner with your purposes. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I encourage you, look at these notes, do a little study between now and the next time we convene. And when we come, let's come hungry together to get more insight on God's purpose in our lives in the last days. God bless you, Gate City. Remember to come next week for that 9 a.m. prayer meeting. We're going to go ahead and dismiss you now. You can be released. If you're a guest or visitor, we invite you to go to the next room.